Well, last week I said um, after uh, the events in Dallas that um, I was uh, anxious to preach on racial reconciliation, uh, how the church should respond, um, what is the church's role and responsibility, uh, but all that happened on Thursday night and did not have chance to prepare, so I prepared this week. Let's go to the Lord. Lord, I ask that You would uh, give me Your help as I seek to um, proclaim faithfully Your Word and um, help us to understand and obey the responsibilities that You have given to the body of Christ uh, as we live at this particular moment in history. Um, as strangers and aliens, um, citizens of heaven, yet who are also citizens of this great nation. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, uh, in preparation for uh, the sermon this week, I, le- I read a lot of articles about the tensions and divisions that were hap- that are happening in our country. I read on both sides of the issue, and frankly, I wasn't real impressed. Aside from the clear teaching of the Word of God on the subject, I'm not exactly sure what I will be able to offer that will be very helpful. However, I do think that the Word of God does speak very powerfully and clearly to this subject. It is important that the church address... um, uh, the racism and and uh, these things that are going on in our country because the only hope that our nation has of overcoming this and growing together instead of apart is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Not just for us in the church, but for our nation and not only for our nation, but for the nations of the earth. So to begin, let me just give a little bit of my perspective. Um, Some of you may know this, others may not. I went to an elementary school that was 95% black. I went to that school because my mom was the teacher in that school. In fact, my mom was my 7th grade teacher. Um, Having my mom as my 7th grade teacher... um, was much more difficult than than being a minority in in the school. Um, still bearing the scars. She took me out twice during the year down to the clinic and spanked me. <laughs> so anyway, and I deserved it. Um, I grew up out on a little lonely country road where, except for one other family, uh, all my neighbors were black. So basically what I'm saying is many of my friends were black. I had sleepovers at their house. They came over and had sleepovers at my house. This was in a small Georgia town. And I say this to let you know that I have firsthand knowledge that my black friends and their families... um, did not have some advantages that I had, um, generally speaking. Um, 
there were subtle advantages that I had that they did not have. It was subtle but real. Uh, Tim Scott, the first African-American U.S. Senator, uh, said that there is a humiliation that comes with feeling like you're being targeted for nothing more than just being yourself. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the advantage I recognized that I had. I, I was always made to feel welcome wherever I was in, um, in our little town of Palmetto. Uh, Palmetto had the white side of the tracks, had the black side of the tracks. My mom taught in the elementary school that was on the black side of the tracks. I felt perfectly at home and welcome on either side of the tracks. Um, and uh, as I moved around town, uh, just welcome opportunities abounded. And that was not the case for um, many of my friends or their families. Tim Scott does not only hold the distinction of being the first black U.S. senator, he's also a Republican and represents the state of South Carolina. And he is a very... Uh, committed Christian. Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. He's very clear about that and lives a lifestyle uh, in keeping with his uh, Christian confession. But he, he says that during his first term as a senator, he was pulled over seven times uh, by the police. He said, was I speeding? He says, sometimes. But... The vast majority of the time I was pulled over for nothing more than driving a new car in the wrong neighborhood. He also said, I do not know many African American men who do not have a very similar story to tell. No matter their profession, no matter their income, no matter their disposition in life. And I know of one of the black men in our congregation that has experienced the very same thing. So, I believe that it is important right from the beginning to acknowledge that there are real experiences and real feelings that lie behind the tensions and divisions in our nation. And frankly, there's a real history that lies behind these tensions and divisions as well. Slavery, the civil rights movement, uh, and bigotry even expressed through the churches. I made a little reference to uh, some of the discussion that we had on the floor of our General Assembly three weeks ago. Um, some of the uh, older pastors um, in our denomination, most of them seem to be from Mississippi, uh, but there were others from other states that had uh, they referenced uh, motions that their session had made that were outright, uh, outrightly racial and bigoted. Um, and it was back in the 70s, early 70s, and then some of the churches went back even before our denomination came into existence and found minutes from the 60s and, and so forth that, uh, that really showed a disdain and a hatred for other people for no other reason than racial uh, motivations. So... Um, as Christians, we are to do much more than recognize that there's a problem. First of all, we are to repent 
if there's racism in our hearts. Um, this goes all ways. Whites towards blacks. Um, blacks towards whites. Whites and blacks towards Hispanics. And so on and so on. All people are creatures created in the image of God. To despise another person for no other reason... Um, well, I'm sorry, let me say that differently. To despise another person for any reason, especially for the color of their skin, is to be guilty of murdering someone in your heart. And frankly, this goes beyond uh, racial differences. We are called to love our enemies. We are called to love, therefore, people who are on opposite sides of political differences uh, or political positions than we are. Um, last year at this time, I think I was. We the Supreme Court had had uh, made the rulings it made in regard to homosexuality. We do believe uh, that because the Scripture teaches homosexuality is a sin. However. We are to love and care for um, people who uh, would uh, who are homosexual, and uh, we are not ever allowed to say this person or that person falls outside the scope of who we are called to love. First John chapter two verse nine says, "Whoever says he." is in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. You cannot be a Christian and be a racist. It is very important that every one of us examine uh, himself and herself. Because it's also possible to commit the sin of racism without being a racist. Let me give an example of what I mean. I love my wife very, very much. Uh, I treasure her more than I love myself. But she can tell you of countless ways and countless times that I have acted selfishly towards her. You know, our political and societal leaders have have actively pitted one group against another. Um, And they do this to gain political advantage. And I imagine many of us have gotten caught up in these very highly emotional manipulations to the point that we've thought things in our hearts towards other groups of people that were not charitable. And maybe even have thought um, racially sinful thoughts towards others. Um, The essence of racism is the absence of love. When we think or act with self-interest as our chief motive, we are not thinking or acting out of love for other people. The love we are called to as Christians far exceeds the definitions of love that the world operates by. And Jesus gives us our standard. Um, He gives us the definition of the love that we are to follow, that we are to exhibit in our lives and uh, cultivate in our hearts. So listen to Matthew 5, 38 
through 42. Sylvester read it just a few moments ago. It bears reading again. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. Because earlier in the same chapter, Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I assume that uh, everyone here uh, knows that he's speaking metaphorically in this passage because I look out, I don't see any nubs, (laughs) I don't see any eye patches. What Jesus is saying here in verses 38 through 42 is that you are to so love other people, even someone who is mistreating you, that you are not just expected not to retaliate when they mistreat you. You are are expected to lovingly serve them in a self-giving fashion. Jesus is not saying that you should not protect yourself. Absolutely, we are to protect ourselves if someone is threatening us. But that's not what He's saying here. The issue is retaliation. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, so the issue is retaliation. Now, when I was in college... um, if someone played a practical joke on me, uh, me and my roommates would say, an eye for a scratch. <laughs> we would uh, do double back on them. But that was in the realm of practical jokes. But here Jesus is saying, you may not um, practice retaliation of any form. Rather, instead of just uh, holding back um, and relenting from retaliation, Your enemy, you are to serve lovingly. You are not to seek vengeance. You are to win the person over by loving him or her well. That's the meaning of these metaphors. Someone slaps you on the cheek, don't retaliate. Rather, offer him the other one. Symbolically speaking. Unless you really do want to offer them your other cheek. Uh, for them to slap the other one as well. Uh, But I don't think that's what he's saying uh, here. Uh, He takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. He forces you to go one mile, go to. In other words, the more... This is is the, the essence of what he's teaching here. The more that they hate you, the more love that you are likely going to have to show to them to win them over. Does that make sense? 
we often redefine love as doing the bare minimum for another person so that then we can quietly move on. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't just say, um, uh, run away from another person or, or, or um, do the bare minimum. Look at verse 39. Verse 39, He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So he's just not talking about a friend who has, has, uh, has mistreated you. He's talking about someone who is evil and how that person has treated you. In other words, um, he's telling us how we're to love our enemies here in this passage. And he drives this point home in verses 43 through 45. You have uh, heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You're to love your enemies. You're to pray for those who persecute you. There is no room for racism of any form for those who would call themselves Christians. Jesus says that God the Father loves the evil and the, and the righteous. He not only loves us as His children, He loves sinners. In fact, we were among the sinners that God loved and brought to Himself. And He uses the church and our love for our enemies and our love for people who call themselves God's enemies to win them over to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can't afford to be anything other than self-sacrificially loving. If we are not loving, we are putting a hindrance a barrier to their coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not reflecting the love that God has for us. We're saying, God, I'm willing to receive Your unconditional love, but I'm going to put conditions on the people that I'm going to love. Can you see how hypocritical and how evil that is? Jesus' whole basis for telling us to love our enemies is because God loves His enemies. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good alike. He causes rain to fall on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. That's why He says in verse 45, "...if you would be sons of your Father who is in heaven..." You must love your enemies. See, God doesn't just help those who love Him. He shows His goodness and mercy even to the evil and the unjust. That's why we're called to serve and love our enemies. Verses 46 and 47 for if you love those who love you, what, regard, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, 
What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, God doesn't let us off the hook when it comes to loving our neighbors. Even if your neighbor is an evil person or your neighbor doesn't like you, you are always to love no matter what. And God's calling us here not just to a one-time love, He's calling us to a consistent, ongoing love. Verse 48, Therefore, or You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the love He is calling us, the perfection He's calling us to here in verse 48 is um, a consistent, self-giving, ongoing love of all people, including our enemies. Now, given the tensions and divisions happening in our country right now, our nation needs the church to stand up and express this kind of love desperately. What will this love look like if we stand up and express this kind of love out in our community, out in our neighborhoods, out in our workplace? In other words, how are, you, how are we to conduct ourselves if we're going to express this biblical love? Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Uh, the Apostle Paul is, is theologizing and musing on Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and here's what he says in Romans chapter 12. And since I'm preaching through Romans, uh, we'll get to chapter 12 um, in a few weeks several weeks, probably many weeks. Uh, so I'm not going to express uh, or, or talk too much about it right now. I'm simply going to read it. Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. How are we to love? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And I know that sounds like a painful and bad thing, but we'll see when we get to this passage. It's actually, you're doing a big favor, uh, helping uh, this person. Uh, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How are we to overcome evil in our society as a church? By overcoming it with good. By displaying the love of God that He has for us. That He has lavished upon us. So we are to lavish upon our society. In a nutshell, this is our response that we are called to. It is the the Word of the Lord. It's not optional. And it is the only response that has any hope of healing the divisions that exist in our country. The only hope of healing those divisions. But it is a sure 
hope. We also have to be clear about the challenges and speak the Word of God into our culture. The challenge uh, without God being involved in it would be insurmountable. It would be impossible. In fact, we know going into this that it won't be easy or it won't be popular. People are entrenched in their positions and are convinced that the other group is wrong or evil. I remember when Eastern Airlines went out of business in the 80s. The Basically what happened at Eastern Airlines is the employees hated the CEO. The CEO was a former astronaut, Frank Borman, and they hated him. And he and the board despised the employees. And uh, both sides felt like the other was unfair and unjust. The employees went on strike. Frank Borman and the board were sure they were right. Such animosity grew between the, the board of directors and the employees that they essentially killed the company. Everybody lost rather than anybody willing to budge an inch. And that's the situation our nation is hurtling toward. Unless the gospel heals our nation, we will tear ourselves apart. And our politicians, to be completely honest, are exacerbating the issue. They are pitting one group against another. They are agitating for more division to, to uh, consolidate their own political power. And when we allow them to manipulate us by getting us agitated against other American citizens, we become a part of the problem as well. It's getting late. Uh, I just I want to very quickly explain the strategy of the politicians. They are using what is called in philosophy the Hegelian dialectic. There's this reality out here, Hegel taught, and to change this reality to what you want it to be, you bring in an antithesis, you bring in conflict, you emphasize and accentuate the conflict. And as the, the thesis and the antithesis crash together, out comes a new synthesis. Out comes a new outcome. This was uh, this is the way that communism uh, worked uh, rev- through revolution. The revolution that was brought in was the ant- Hegel's antithesis. And through each conflict, or through each negative event uh, in our nation's history. The politicians are accentuating it and distorting it even if if need be to bring about changes that they want in our society. And they are manipulating uh, the American citizenry to do it. And uh, it is a difficult thing to be loving and to stand up and speak um, truth to power, if you will, to speak lovingly, truthfully to our culture when people don't want to hear it. But that's what's going on. That's why one of our politicians famously said, you should never let a serious crisis go to waste to bring about social change that they want to see bring about, be, um, be brought about. We are easily manipulated because we are sinners. 
And that's the real crux of the problem. Humanity operates out of self-interest and self-concern. Our self-love makes us especially susceptible to racism and hatred toward others. If God removed His restraint, we would quickly destroy each other. We would quickly devour each other. But God keeps His restraint upon us because He is determined to save a people out of the mess that we find ourselves in. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. He loves those who hate Him so much that He laid their sins upon His Son, Jesus Christ, so that Jesus could bear their punishment in their place. This is the only way for Him to offer us the forgiveness. This is the only way for our sins to be paid for. But He loves us so much that He did it. And He's continuing to do it. He is continuing through His Gospel to bring people to Himself. And in bringing people to Himself, He is transforming culture and society one soul at a time. And we are His mouthpiece in this regard. And His example when it comes to love. Does this seem like just pie-in-the-sky kind of talk? Is there really any chance that godly, biblical, self-giving love will make any difference in the world? If you doubt the power of the love that I'm speaking of, I offer to you a woman named Shatima Taylor. You might have heard of her in the last several days. She took her sons to the rally in Dallas uh, last Thursday before last. And when all the shooting erupted all around her, she jumped on one of her sons to shield his body. And in so doing, she took a bullet in the leg. She um, went to the hospital. And as part of her uh, being in the hospital, she began. people came and interviewed her and she spoke. And she says that uh, even though she was at the rally, She spoke of her admiration for the police officers who did protect her family, who shielded her her children with their own bodies and ushered them, raced into where the bullets were flying to get their children out of there. And she said that her son stated that these were isolated incidents, she said, of the police shootings. Unfortunately, they are frequent, but we have to learn to love. We have to learn to understand that policemen and policewomen are not robots. They're human beings, she says. So on Sunday, uh, Shatima Taylor broke down in tears as she described uh, the Dallas shooting in in, uh, great detail in an interview. And she said that uh, while she was at the hospital, uh, she got word that all her children were safe. And she was so happy and she was rejoicing. But right as she was rejoicing, she saw outside her room, or outside, you know, how they are in emergency rooms, curtains in many cases, um, one officer telling another officer that uh, one of their fellow police officers had been killed. And she broke down. In the midst of her joy, she said her heart was broken for those people. 
she, she referred to the police who shielded her and her four sons as heroes and the one of in, and in one affecting moment, she recalled hearing from her hospital bed about uh, her child surviving. And um, she said it hurt her to see these officers weeping with each other. Their hurt, she said, hurt her. And so um, she's speaking about love. She's speaking about reconciliation. That's the love that we are called to have in spite of all odds, in spite of all circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we'd be so self-consumed with our own self-interest had You not brought us out of the world and brought us to Yourself. And Father, even as believers in our Lord Jesus, we need Your Spirit every moment of every day in order to um, fulfill the kind of love that You are calling us toward. We ask that You would help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Number seven.